Welcome back. It's another episode of Inside the World of Duotone. I am your host, Lewis Crathen, and today we are speaking to a Duotone Waterman. There's a reason why I'm saying Waterman, and it is Jerome Clutens. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Lewis. It's very nice to be here. I've been a while wanting to be in the podcast, so it's cool. It's cool to be here. Well, we're going to have a great chat today all about how it, how life is as a, as an athlete for Duotone, of which you've been for many years, I believe now, and also this exciting project that you are working on as well um, on the side, or perhaps it's even uh, overtaking what you're doing with Duotone. I don't know, but we're going to discover all of that. But just quickly, where are you Where are you tuning in from today? Where are you speaking to me from? I'm currently at my hometown, Tarifa, Spain. Um, and it's looking a pretty good poniente to have a, a really nice session in the afternoon. Not going to lie. So, okay. Um, yeah. Nice. And uh, temperature outside today? Pretty cold today. It's it's wind from the north. Um, I would say, well, cold for me, at least um, around 15 degrees, but with oh, a, wow. a cold cold uh, breeze. Yeah, well, they say it's cold back in the UK today, but I think it's uh, closer to zero. But let's move on yeah. and ch- chat a little bit about you um, and yourself. And I want to know straight up now, I'm interested in uh, how long that you've been kiteboarding for. So I started basically when I was eight or nine years old. And um, I actually got on into Duoton when I was 12. So I've been there for quite a while. And um, yeah, so... I went international when I was 14. So I've been in the team for quite a while now, almost almost 11 years, I think, or 10 years. It's wow. pretty crazy. Yeah. So uh, judging by that, I can I was never like to ask people their ages, but I think I can work out roughly your age <laughs> off that. But that's pretty impressive. So pretty much your whole adult life, you've been uh, an athlete for Duotone and, and Duotone kiteboarding, I should say, to start with. But you are actually mm-hmm. one of just four athletes on the Duotone international team representing both kiteboarding and wing foiling, which I think is really impressive. So how long have you actually been uh, wing foiling officially as, as one of the athletes for Duotone? Um, officially, I think probably like a year, but I got into wing two, three years ago, I think it was. Um, I was have, like had a trip and I borrowed a, a foil out, out for the trip just to, for the days it's not good for kiting. And then I got quite hooked to it. Um, just after a few sessions, it was quite fun to to have these this other sport that you can do when the conditions are not so good for kiting. You can always play around with the wing. So at the beginning, it was more like just a second option, and now it's it's like fifty fifty, even sometimes more more into the wing than into kiting. Wow, it must be it must be nice to have something else other than kiteboarding to do. And I mean, most of the professionals that I speak to, they're not just into kiteboarding. There's there's other sports that they do, sometimes not just on the water as well. I know golf is quite a, a common passion among mm-hmm. some of the of the athletes uh, um, around here, where I am right now in Cape Town, that is where lots of the pros are. <laughs> but what really interests me, Jerome, is that you don't just do it for a passion. You're obviously very good at it to actually be, you know, when I say officially, I was pretty much pointing to you being on the team on the page. That for me is like you, you're definitely on the international team. So to represent Duotone for both uh, both teams is quite impressive for me. So you're obviously not just uh, into it for a bit of fun. You're very good here. And just to remind the the listeners as well, some of your kiteboarding accolades as well, that you, you're kind of a household name that you've been competing on the freestyle circuit for, oh, well, I'm going to say mm-hmm. maybe 10 years or more with that 
as well. Now, tell me a bit about your life when you were, were younger as a as a kiteboarder that was on the international team. You said 14 that you actually went pro on the international team. What did that involve when you were working hard at doing the best you could on the world tour? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that was kind of like the coolest thing for me with Duton that they were there since the start and kind of like that from such a young age it was basically family and so when I was studying when I was like around 16 is when I started uh, doing the world tour um, I wouldn't do the whole the whole uh, tour completely because I still had to study but I would do around four stops a year and then when I turned around 18 then is when I decided all right I'm going to go full on in into the world tour um, stop studying for a bit and after one year um, I enjoyed doing the whole tour but I still felt like I, I wanted to to learn a bit more about other stuff. So I went, I went back to university and, um, with the, cause through, throughout there, I won the, the world youth championship, the European championships and a few times this, the Spanish championship. So I had like an official certificate to skip class and change exams. So <laughs> that really, really helped out. And, um, yeah, with the support of, of Duotone that they were super flexible with, with my studies and with the, with that certificate, I was able to compete, um, for like four years on the world tour full on while still doing like the university in Barcelona. And that was like a really, really fun time for me. Cause I had kind of like the both lives, like the, the, the student life mm-hmm. of, of university life. And then the pro athlete traveling the world kind of life as well. So yeah. it was a really cool mix and I would kind of never get bored. Yeah. I, I, enjoyed bet it a lot. I bet your friends were quite jealous when you were telling them where you were going <laughs> every other weekend if they were anything like my friends at university they weren't living quite yeah. that sort of luxurious lifestyle and was was that i mean that sounds to me quite um challenging actually to be able to take your mindset from studying being disciplined time inside very much i imagine to really put your attention into learning and then sun- suddenly disappearing somewhere really beautiful and and hot and warm but actually trying to compete to the highest level how were you able to shift your mindset so so frequently from one one thing to the other yeah that, that was a bit of the tricky part but one thing for sure i was not the type of traveler and studying at the same time so whenever i would go for a comp or, or traveling around for, for kiting i couldn't focus on on studying a university so it was basically a few months before the exam i would lock myself in in a in a room try to get it in two three weeks maybe one month like nonstop, get it, get it done, go back to Brazil or anywhere in the world to go kite. And then like that on repeat three or four times a year, that was basically the way I would put it on. And I kind of liked it because whenever I would be training for three, four months, nonstop, I would sort of not have like full on motivation to really keep going. So I had like one month where I could completely change my mindset and then go back, back into it full on. So for me, it was, it was really cool to, to be able to mix the two things. And it never really, of course it was a challenge, but it never felt like overwhelming or something because at the end I was doing exactly what I wanted. So it was, it was really fun. And, and with kiting, um, yeah, the cool thing, if you study at the same time, you see kiting, not so much as a work, but more as a, Mm -hmm. as a fun part. So it was really, really cool to go back to kiting every time. Like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad I can be doing this and, and enjoy it to the full. So it was really refreshing every time that had sort of exams when, when we get back to the water afterwards. I think that's a really um, important uh, topic to highlight about how when something becomes your job, that too much of it, no matter how amazing it might seem to other people, it actually 
um, mm-hmm. can become same, same and having that different outlook uh, where you do naturally take time away can really make you appreciate and not take for granted because you can take for granted. I've certainly been there myself. I've taken for granted being a kiteboarding yeah. athlete and being places and thinking, oh, yeah, I'm here again. And then when you have that time away, you certainly do miss it. And I think that's the case with pretty much most things in life. It's about getting a consistent balance. Uh, we've spoke about your competing in kiteboarding during your your early days, or maybe maybe not even your early days. You're still competing. Let's uh, let's get to the point mm-hmm. here. Uh, you've been competing in both kite and wing events this this year, or certainly last year. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I can read here. How how did that go? Two different. All right, talking about you know studying and, and competing. What about competing in two different sports completely? How was that? So right now, my focus more into the competition is, is more wing kiting. I, I do the nationals and, and the world cups, if, especially if they're in, in, in like Spain, I will definitely join the world cup, but I wouldn't go like to, to Brazil or, or to, to the other stops, but for wing, I'm, I'm going more full on. And, and the approach I had in wing, the reason why I loved it so much is because there's so much room for progress and nothing is written down and you can like, you can pr- like win a comp by innovating or by coming with something new, you, it's a different type of training and it's a very, like it really gives like a, a mental satisfaction. So for me, the last year on the wing, I um, the, the learning curve was so fast because everything was so new. So it was super fun. I did um, fifth in, in Lanzarote and fifth in, in Dakla as well. Um, wow. Uh, and I think, I think next year it's going to be, I'll, I'll, I am, I'm looking more forward for this year because I've been able to progress a lot over the, over the, like the no competition season. Mm-hmm. But the, the fun part is that you, you're trying completely something new. So it's, there's no, no pressure and, and there's so much room to play with. Yeah. God, it, it does sound fun. The idea of being at the start of a sport. Now I myself mm-hmm. wasn't, I can't say I was at the start of kiteboarding. It had happened and, uh, you know, I very much sort of jumped on board with it when I started 20 years ago. But something like you're talking about here, uh, just for perhaps our listeners that don't really know what wing foiling is here, it's a very similar looking thing to, to windsurfing. However, with the hydrofoils under the boards, now we have these small, almost look like windsurfing sails, but you hold on to them, no harness which is the real unique part about it. And you can fly around the water and actually jump some pretty cool heights as well. But Jerome, how long has this sport been around for? I think around four years. I'm not too sure, but yeah, definitely not more than five or six years. Um, Yeah, it's very, very young. And until basically one year and a half ago, two years, the gear, like just, it went like level up like crazy the last, the last two years. And now it's a total different sport than it was at the beginning. What changed? Really what changed about the gear? You know, like we hear the gear's got great, it's leveled up. What actually has changed, would you say, if you could really sum it up in the equipment that's made it um, a different sport than the beginning? So basically from from the, the foils, like the front wings, the, the back wings, the, the fuselage, the mast, everything has like insanely um, progressed. Like now you have way smaller foils. You can jump double the higher your boards don't need to be that big. Um, your wing wing um, sail has way more power than before. So basically, um, like you, the riders progress quite a lot in a few years, but it's also the 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 gear progress so much that everything is so much easier. Like now, 
two years ago doing a backflip with the gear that was before because it was like basically 20 kilos if you take into account the board the fuel and everything and now like full carbon and and boards that are super light you can do a backflip with 10 knots nine knots on on the on the wing which everything makes it much easier and it's it's just to write to write simply it's it's a different sport than before it's not not so much of a like struggle it's it's much smoother than before okay so technology is really having an influence uh, yeah. on the on the sport as well and like we're discussing this must be really exciting to be right in bang in the middle of, of the sport exploding you just told me that you've had some top five results in the world now before we move on to another topic i'm going to ask you do you think you've got what it takes to be a world champion in wing foiling mm, i don't it's i would love to to win a uh a, a, World, well, like a world cup one stop but i'm not dedicating myself um you know like if you want to be a, a world champion you it's a day and night thing you really have to focus full on into it and and not put other priorities um right now with, with palau with my project I, it's it takes me eight hours a day at least um wow, okay. to, to, as minimum so it's it's yeah you i'll, I'll be able to to keep up with the same tricks as the world champion, but I won't be able to keep the consistency and I won't be able to, to deliver like when the worst conditions are on, because I have a, I would have need to train like yeah day and night, 50 knots, five knots nonstop. And I'm, I'm sort of doing that, but in, in a very smaller scale than, than what if, if I would, if I would try to be world champion. Well, that's um, that's a great answer. Thank you. And it's actually led us quite nicely on to uh, the project that you're working on quite a lot, which you just mentioned was the Palau project and a big part of our conversation today. I really want to talk about that. It's a lovely, uh, it's a lovely concept. And I'd actually like you to explain to our listeners what, what is the Palau project? Mm, it's a it's an app um that basically helps you i like to call it the the swiss knife to, to tackle climate change when it comes to food but basically it's it's because myself and and friends of mine we have no like we had no idea how to reduce our environmental impact like no clue how to solve it so i kind of wanted to have a tool to sort of kill all the <laughs> it's a bit rough but like all the bullshit of sustainability and and just make it everything transparent and easy to make decisions. So um, we created this database where you can scan any food products and see the environmental impact of the whole supply chain. So you can track like the CO2 emissions, the effect on biodiversity, the, the effect on transportation, impact of plastic, and as well as the nutritional values. And then the cool thing here is that um, you also receive the nutritional values. Uh, the, you also can a- able to see the uh, alternatives. So if the product is bad, you just go for the alternative. So it was more more of a at the beginning more of a personal project that I, I wanted to be more let's say sustainable but didn't want to change my lifestyle like crazy i just wanted to understand things and and do it the the best way possible so yeah created this app um to to reduce my own footprint in in a very convenient way and made it public and slow, slowly it's building up it's pretty cool to see the, the traction going um right now well, it is a wonderful project and uh, I really want to emphasize here to our listeners, this, this isn't just something that you, you, you know, is a hobby. This is something that's really taken off here. Now, I've actually had a really good look through this because uh, climate change is also something that um, I'm very passionate about being involved in using, um, using my 
my life skills, I guess, with, with kiteboarding and maybe similar to you, some of the, mm-hmm. some of the ways that you and things you've seen around the world have perhaps caused you to really pay attention to this. Now, I just want to yeah. bring up some, of uh, some of these statistics that you've got on your website. This is the palauproject.com, P-A-L-A-U projects.com, which is a wonderful website, which really clearly states what it is. Uh, you're doing and of course you have the app as well which we'll link in the descriptions as well below but one in three of the world's pollution is caused by the food industry that is a very powerful statement i think jerome Mm -hmm. yeah and you know here what's so crazy about about palau and the project and why i'm so obsessed with it is the impact it it can have it's basically a, a market force so let's say you or me, we scan a, a cow milk, for example, and then we switch to, we see the alternative and we see it's an oat milk. Like for some people, that's an easy alternative because they don't care so much about milk, but for others, it just depends. But that will reduce around 162 kilograms of CO2, which is like 10,000 kilometers driven by car, 222,000 liters of water, which is like crazy amount of water and like 652 meters of land. So like almost wow. two tennis courts, just to change this product to the other product for, for a whole year. So rather than putting milk in your coffee, you put oat milk in your coffee. That, that's the impact it changes. So you can really give this perspective. And then if people, like if one person does this, okay, it's a great impact, but it won't change the world. If a thousand people do it, then it's slowly like, let's say a hundred thousand, one million to 10 million. It's, it's a market force. We can change the way the food industry is going and, and, and the supply chain of food products. Cause at the end, the consumer is going to buy the easiest, the most convenient product for them. But if they are aware of, of the footprint, like supply chains will have to get better. Well, like manufacturers will have to produce a product that is like fully sustainable without making a greenwash. So it's just crazy the impact this can have. And that's why I have a hard time um, not spending time behind my computer because it's such a good opportunity to to really tackle the problem it's it's really amazing here i'm still just scrolling around looking at um the app and how it works and we're going to talk a little bit more about that but just touching on what you've just said there everybody says small changes will make a difference you know everyone make a small change but actually what i think you're really doing here is actually showing people the changes, the small changes, the effects that they can have. You've even just given me two tennis courts, uh, this amount of water, you know, actually conveying that to people, what actually these small changes can do, because it's all right saying, you know, small changes altogether really help, but you're actually going about making that visible for people in a way that they can really see uh, how that works. I mean, but I'm just sitting here thinking, is there some sort of huge database that you're having to create for every food or on, on, on your platform? I mean, how are you getting all these different foods and foods and drinks? How many do you have so far that you could actually tell us if they're good or, or bad the way that they're produced? Yeah, that's the, the hard work part. That's the, why we, we, we have to work so much, but, um, the cool thing here is it's, it's like a lot of people want this. So there's a lot of people collaborating for this and it's not not just palau there's other companies that we're working together for this we have 2.5 million products on the database right now and wow. there's going to be an update in hopefully less than a few weeks that will reach to 3 million which is super cool um and even that 3 million is still not not there yet like now in spain france i think in the uk it's even a bit less like if you scan around 10 products you will only find like six um products so until we don't get like 10 out of 10 it it 
still still a lot of work to be done. And the way the way you collect this data, it's it's a, a bit bit tricky because you have to be there's sort of two ways of getting it. You have to be dependent on the manufacturer, so you have to ask the manufacturer for providing the whole information of supply chain. It's called uh, doing a life cycle assessment of their supply chain, which costs around eight thousand euros. And there is around five organizations in Europe that can do this. So yeah, a lot of manufacturers try to skip that way. But the way we do it is with the information we collect from the ingredients, the origin from ingredients, we can already make a life cycle assessment um, estimation. And it's actually pretty close. The The differentiation of actually doing the life cycle assessment is 20% up or 20% down. So we already provide the life cycle assessment of that product before the manufacturer um, provides information of their supply chain. So we can already show the impact of the product. And if the manufacturer is not happy about the information, then we just ask them to to give the, the full transparency of their supply chain. So this is the, the cool part of, of, of the project as well is that we're pushing to make the supply chain transparent and we don't have to wait uh, for every manufacturer to to give us the answer. Yeah, that's nice. You can just get on with it and go with who's communicating mm-hmm with you. So I want to really talk about the app here now. Okay. I want everyone to imagine yeah. you're, you're in the, you're in the supermarket, your typical person. How does your app work? How can we interact with it straight away when we think, actually, I want to know about a product uh, and how it's made and, and, and how good or bad that is perhaps for the environment? Yeah. So in the supermarket, you would use the app to um, scan food products and then you can see the, the environmental impact and then the alternatives. But the app, as I said in the beginning, the goal is to sort of be a Swiss knife. So we, we try to help you even before that. So first you're able to calculate your footprint um, of your diet. Like what you just have to put a few information about the food you eat. And then we tell you sort of an average of how much water you consume, land you consume and a CO2. And then from there on, we give you a few um, like solutions to, to try. And one of the main ones is to scan your food products so you can be more accurate and then change to the alternative. But yeah, in the supermarket, it will be just a scanning tool where you can um, just get any product and and see the environmental impact. So you use your camera, you use your camera. Sorry to interrupt. You would use your camera and literally just point it at the barcode in the app and it will come up uh, with with all the information you needed. Yeah, exactly. And then the alternative system works in your region. So if you're, you select in the, in the app that you're from from Spain or from wherever we'll try to get the alternatives as close as possible from you. Let's talk a little bit about the journey of Palau then, because it looks like you've been on quite a journey. It's not just something you've been working on uh, for a couple of months now. Um, I'm reading here that you've got some quite heavy uh, some backers and you, you've learned lots and you've, you've studied really hard. What's the situations with Palau Project at this moment in time as far as um, sort of the investment and backing that you have? Mm-hmm. So the the struggle with Palau at the moment is that we – um, are so focused on impact that we kind of lift a bit of the monetizing situation a bit on the side, like the, the revenue model. Um, so it was a bit hard to, to find investments, but we, we raised around 150,000 right now for the project, um, from, from several organizations, like, uh, even a, a bank has, has given us money. Uh, the Belgian government has also given us money and Duoton has been super supportive on, on this side as well, which is, it's super cool. And um, yeah, right now we're going to start adding a, a few revenue models into the app, but just to, to test out and 
we kind of did like without joking since we started maybe 85 updates of the app because it's so hard to provide wow. this information um everyone is, is so new to to the climate impact of of themselves their products and everything that it, it it's a bit overwhelming when you see it for the first time so it's it's a really hard problem in terms of of doing the right story storytelling that do not make them feel guilty to give them a motivation to act upon it and to feel part of the of of the change so it's a bit of a a, a tricky problem but it's it's super exciting to to be facing it at first hand and to really iterate test 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 and you have no idea how much the kiting community has helped me here like i've i found the the UX designers, the best UX designers to, to kiting. I found investors to kiting. I found um, my team, my whole team kites, like developers, like at the beginning, I, well, even now uh, I, we cannot pay normal prices because we we're still too much of a small startup. And thanks to kiting and thanks to the mission that we have, we've managed to, to gather so many in, insane talent to, to work on the project, which that's, that's probably the, the coolest thing kiting could have ever given me. Wow, I think that's that's wonderful to touch on that, just how powerful the community are, not just kiteboarding, mm. but many water sports or sport in, ge- in general. But kiteboarders, from uh, obviously my experience as well, there's some really creative people in the world in kiteboarding. And it's lovely to hear that mm. you've managed to gravitate, they've gravitated towards your project because everybody wants to try and do their bit with climate change or perhaps get more involved than than you know thinking about your recycling but you just spoke about um how for you that's about you know not totally overwhelming people and actually giving them a clear way you've focused on food and how food can affect you know the, produ- the production mm-hmm. of food can really be one way we we look to do things and i think that's really nice that that's the the angle and the direction you've gone down because it can be overwhelming you can sit here mm-hmm. there's so many different aspects of uh, of climate change and our impact on the environment you can see it and think well there's just so many things going on how could i make one difference at all and i love with you that you've gone down this route to look at you know one third of the, the impact is how we're producing food um we just spoke uh, a little bit about uh, some of the things that are involved in what you're doing uh, some of the skills you might have got from the community of kiteboarding as well but i want to talk about the skills that, that you may have here now i think you've learned some great things through your experience as being a professional kiteboarder traveling meeting people different ages different cultures but what is it exactly that you you've done and studied at university which has given you this um incredible skill set to to sort of be focused on coming up with this great idea and actually putting it into practice mm-hmm. The funny thing here is that um, if you would compare my studies and my kitesurfing career for for starting a, a startup, um, kitesurfing is giving me much more than than um, than my studying career. And um, yeah, it's I would say I'm definitely not like I don't have like insane skill set. I'm learning on the job all the time. Same as with kiting and same as with with studying. That's the 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 reason why I guess we are all in extreme sports is to always being a little bit out of your, your comfort zone. And, um, from kiting, I've learned to, to sell myself basically as an athlete, you have to always, um, look for sponsors, make deals, go into the mags, make sure you, 
you are social media are, are are sharp and that you you compete but you also have to be a, an ambassador for the brand mm-hmm. so that was that was super helpful and um yeah i i like my my contract with duoton started when i was 14 my parents never got involved so i would always have to present the project to duoton when i when i was like Literally, I was like, I'm going to go to Brazil. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go do this, 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 and that. And I want this type of money. And then, um, like Tommy from Duoton will, will look at me. He's like, you don't, don't even arrive to the, to the camera. You're too small. How are you going to do all this stuff? <laughs> and, um, that was, that was the cool part. Cause you, you learn so much on the way. My, my parents like, look, if you want to kite, you're going to have to figure out yourself. My dad just put me out in front of the bank and like you go talk to them and ask for a credit card and, and start doing your own thing. If you're going to do this kiting thing, you need to do it right. So the kiting process and, and traveling the world from, from your 14 is was probably the most like valuable thing to, to what I'm doing now because you learn so much on the way. I think that's uh, similar for lots of kite boarders or athletes as far mm-hmm. as you know, you spoke there of, of marketing yourself, selling yourself. It's all right having a wonderful idea in life, but you've got to be able to communicate it and being and and, and having the lifestyle that, that you have and having to do it for yourself is is those sorts of skills. I always think myself, you can't learn those sorts of skills uh, in college or university. You can be very direct with what you want to broaden your skill set on when you go and study, but those life skills can only be done with experience like this, first-hand experience. Now, constantly renegotiating your contracts, uh, explaining while you're going to Brazil, you're not just going there for a holiday, how to obtain certain budgets is definitely something that is really required to be a professional athlete. And I think the last sort of question that I'd like to ask you here, Jerome, is especially you for someone that's you know been quite young getting into the sport 14 that's i mean not the youngest these days but it's still quite young i would love to know what advice that you would have to young people listening now that are aspiring to become perhaps a professional kiteboarder perhaps a professional in any sport that they really believe they're good at it maybe they're really young below 10 around 10 12 14 maybe even teenagers what advice would you give to them about how they can make a life out of the sport that they they love mm-hmm. yeah it's a, i don't think i have like one clear well if i could summarize in one sentence it will be perseverance and joy is the key to progression so you always have to like have a lot of perseverance but have a lot of fun at the same time especially in extreme sports because you have to push yourself out of your zone all the time so if you're not having fun while you're doing it then it's going to be a very hard time and then the second thing that i would really recommend that that was tarifa like was essential for me is surround yourself with with kids that want to be the best as well like i had liam next to me i had manu had alex pastor i had all the world champions training in Tarifa. So that was like an environment that really pushes you to your max is essential. Like having fun while you're doing it is also essential. And then, um, yeah, spend a lot of time out of the water training as well. And, and thinking of how you could, uh, progress inside the water, not just in terms of, of, uh, like physical training, but like sponsors, um, support from here and then like really be, open on having mentors and having people to help you out on your, on your journey. Cause that is, that is also essential that you, you're, you have the right, the right people around you. Like having a coach can make a huge difference when you're 14, because you, you mm. think, you know, a lot of information yet. And that was probably 
my mistake when I was 16, um, when we st- I started doing the world tour with Liam and everything, we were like, we're cool kids. We don't need any coach. We don't need anyone supervising us. So we would just travel, compete the way we thought we had to compete. But it took us years of, of, of learning, uh, especially m- more for me than, than for Liam to understand like how to compete properly and how to give it your max. So if I had a coach back then um, to just guide me a bit more, it would have made a huge difference. So be open for, for feedback have fun and put yourself in an environment that that's going to push you to the max. They're lovely messages to wrap up uh, this podcast, Jerome. So I want to thank you very much for for joining us. That was very insightful and you're a great example of certainly a, a team rider, international team rider that's been consistently delivering for a number of years, but has been able to transition those life skills that you've learned through the world of kiteboarding into other interests and projects. And it's for, for me, I love seeing that where it just seems to be so seamless, that transition. And you're obviously still competing at a high level as well, which I think is really special. So thank you very much for joining us. I wish you all the best with your Palau project. This is Inside the World of Durotone with Lewis Cratton. <laughs> and thank you very much, Jerome Clotons, for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Lewis. It was very fun talking to you. Mm-hmm.